0: ESPN and Anscape contributor Dominique Foxworth has a new podcast every Tuesday and Thursday, bringing his unique perspectives on football, the personalities that surround it, and just about anything else he finds interesting or thinks you might. So check out The Dominique Foxworth Show. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Interviews with actors, comedians, athletes, neuroscientists, authors anybody I find interesting. We talk about their careers, successes, failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. I think I asked some pretty darn good questions, but don't take it from me. Just ask star of screen and stage, Nick Offerman. It's a great question. That's it's an astute question. Um, gosh, that's a good question. That's a great question. Gosh, uh, that, that's a great question. That is a great question. This has been a litany of great questions. I was right to, to, agree, to agree to this.
1: My name is Alexandra Horowitz, and I have a dilemma. Dogs do not live long
0: enough. To quote the author Agnes Sly Turnbull, dogs' lives are too short, their only fault, really. I know that you just lost two beloved dogs fairly recently, um, dogs who were featured in your books and studies and other work. Uh, two within a month of each other earlier this year, and I'm heartbroken for you. This is a dilemma, um, for all of us, dog lovers and dog owners, um, and would that I had a solution. I, um, will be looking for one more and more so as the days pass, because I live, uh, with three old dogs, and I'm not counting my husband, that makes it four. Um, Fletch, uh, is going to be 11 in November um, and he was actually recently diagnosed with an incurable and very aggressive cancer. Um, we found it because of another sickness that he's since recovered from. Um, and he's spry as hell, seems totally healthy and happy. So we're hoping that the cancer we found isn't really affecting him yet and that the chemo treatments are going to keep it at bay to give us another few years with our, with our first born. Um, Fletch is the only one we rescued as a puppy. So we're just kind of guessing at whole, how old our um, our other two, our pity mixes, Banks and Haji are. Um, but we've had them for nine and eight years, respectively. Um, and they were anywhere from maybe one to three when we got them. So they are close to, if not past the decade mark as well. Um, and the thought of of any of the three of them passing... Um, is pretty much instant tears. Same goes for when I see somebody else post about their dog um, passing away on social media or hear about it. So I've been trying to make myself think about it and ready myself for it instead of always avoiding it um, my husband deals with these things very differently. He knows that I don't deal with death well and that I've uh, been extremely fortunate in my life to deal with very few deaths of people close to me. Um, so he took a very direct tact of dealing with it when we uh, first got Fletch. Uh, he announced as we were carrying slash walking baby Fletch home from adopting him, you know he's going to die, right? <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> different approaches from the two of us on that one. Um you know, in the end, he is. And the only piece uh, uh, that comes when that happens is knowing that it was worth it and that you knew it would come no matter no matter how short or how long you have your dog. You kind of you know that that's the deal you're making um, and that the joy that you get every single day uh, from your best friend and your family members is uh, totally worth the heartache of losing them. Uh, a lot of people say grief is just love with no place to go. Mm. And I suppose when it comes to dogs, our only answer When we're ready, of course, uh, is to give all that love to a new dog or two, uh, even knowing that our hearts will get broken again. So I wish I had a solution Uh, I can only share in your dilemma.
1: That's what she said.
0: Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Uh, you know, I was given so much joy by Nick Offerman liking my questions and saying he was grateful to have said yes to to chatting with me that I thought I'd just let every pod start with a reminder of that joy. So that's back, and it's gonna stay, uh, and it actually jives with my feelings around this particular episode because I genuinely am never more grateful to do this podcast and have all of you amazing listeners support it than when I get to read about, study, get curious, get nosy, and ask about things that I love. And call it work. And in this case, talking to Dr. Alexandra Horowitz about dogs, um, just so filled up by my conversation with her and her lovely and smart and informed and empathetic view of our relationship with our best friends and also just the larger animal world and and humans' responsibility in it. Um, So I hope you love listening just as much um, as I love doing it. Uh, Dr. Horowitz is a professor at Barnard College of Columbia University where she teaches seminars in canine cognition, creative nonfiction writing, and audio storytelling. She's a senior research fellow. She founded and heads the Dog Cognition Lab at Barnard, And her books are fantastic. Uh, They include the runaway hit, number one New York Times bestseller, Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know. Also, Being a Dog, Following the Dog into a World of Smell. And Our Dogs, Ourselves, which is super entertaining and sweet and heartbreaking as well, look at the sort of disparate ways that we live with dogs and how our lives have become intertwined with another species. Uh, She has a new book, The Year of the Puppy how dogs become themselves it's out tomorrow if you're listening to this um actually out today if you're listening to this live um it charts the first year of a puppy's life and um i hope you enjoy our conversation we talk about umwelt uh anthropomorphizing our dogs both for good and bad why our dogs are like chairs in the eyes of the law the one thing that you should do more often to make your dog's life happier and a bunch of other stuff enjoy
1: that's what she said
0: (laughs) I'm so excited to have Alexandra on the podcast. Um, When I first got gifted Our Dogs Ourselves and read it cover to cover, I instantly was like, I need to find this woman. And i messaged her on Twitter and then months later um, messaged again, and here we are. And now I get to ask all the burning questions of someone who has spent so much time with dogs and has such a special and unique uh, appreciation of our relationship with them. So I'm so excited you're here. Uh, Before we get to the work that you do, I kind of want to find out what kind of kid you were, and if, if there were dogs around at all times, or um, if you were into music or sports, or what you liked when you were growing up? Uh, what kind of kid I was is a,
1: just such a cool question, uh, and maybe it's even hard to reflect on your own childhood, but I feel like I was a uh, kid who was always very sensitive to and kind of worried about um, animals. Not so that I thought, "Oh, my career is going to be in animals but I just adored uh, our family dog Aster and Cat Barnaby and they were important to me in ways I, I could not and, and probably did not articulate they were just you know part of the sinews of my body um, so that was the kind of kid I was I, I was also into sports I was a swimmer nice. and I was like a good student you know I was that kind of kid Uh, I filled my day with activities and went to sleep exhausted and uh, with the dog on my bed.
0: Oh, I love it. That sounds like me. And uh, now that I'm older, I'm like, how did my parents, first of all, be willing to pay for all that and then drive me to all that all the time? Oh, all the driving. <laughs> all the driving. So much time in the car. I've yeah. rethought, like, the the nerves of your child getting a driver's license are probably outweighed by, thank God, <laughs> take care of yourself. Precisely. Drive yourself there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was driving at 16, and, and yeah. I, now I think that's insanity.
0: That's insane to, but to I I be thought, trusted. Yeah, I'm out of her hair. But, but out of her hair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So when did you first consider being able to study dogs as a job and not just something that you loved?
1: Not until I was in graduate school. And that was when I was in my late 20s. I went to graduate school at 26, and I think I was probably 30 before Mm. I uh, was considering the research I was doing, which was on play behavior in animals, um, and turned toward the animal who I lived with at the time, a dog named Pumpernickel, <laughs> and, and realized that I was taking her out to play three times a day and that maybe I should look at this subject in front of me, uh, convinced my dissertation committee that I could study dogs and, and then turned my gaze toward dogs and it, it really hasn't turned away. Where did you go for undergrad and what was your study at the time? I went to Penn, University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and I studied philosophy, which I really loved, uh, not with an aim to, different than the students I have now at Barnard who are looking forward all the time. And I was just looking, you know, directly in front of my nose. I just loved to engage in philosophy. I didn't think of it as a career choice. I just thought of it as a way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and
0: got to grad I, school and you were like, oh, but... What will I do with this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but
1: philosophy still turned in handy because it turned out to be a handy approach to science. When I became a scientist, my bent was always philosophical. I mean, my interest in some way is always like, how do you ask answerable questions? Yeah, which I think probably comes from philosophy.
0: Well, I want to get to that because it does seem to infuse a lot of of the work you do. This feeling of like looking at things, not just as a study, but also the bigger picture and Mm. where it sits in in our consciousness as humans and as other animals. You know, I had Dr. Lori Santos on the podcast. She runs the Happiness Lab, but also the Canine Cognition Center at Yale. And part of her study was looking at primates and trying to figure out what things are inherently human versus also could be found in animals. And it was primates first, but then dogs as well, because primates are closest to us genetically, but dogs are closest to us in our everyday lives and following the patterns of the things that we do so when you talk about studying play and animals was the initial intent there to understand humans better by understanding animals or was it solely for the purpose of studying animals
1: uh right that's a great question and by the way Lori is fantastic she's amazing and, and just moves from domain to domain um so easily uh i i was interested as you say in this kind of comparative psychological approach which was um, uh, an increasingly popular approach to studying non-human animals not just looking at behavior but saying oh can we say something about their minds on the basis of their behavior and the things we were interested in about their minds are the things that we can do as humans so Mm. all the research early research was comparative Babies yeah. can do this. Can chimps do it? Right. And then can dogs do it? So I was looking at play behavior because I thought it was a context in which we might learn whether dogs or any animals have a theory of mind, which is this thing that babies develop around three or four, arguably, where we start to realize that, oh, not everybody knows what I know. You know, other people have different mm. knowledge, dates and opinions and desires and experiences. Um, we're thinking about other minds, basically, and that's a really important part of social development that we're not born with, but that we seem to be predisposed to and then over time develop. And there's a big question whether any non-human animals have a theory of minds. Um, if they do, if we could discover that, that would be, that would be huge, uh, realizing that they're, they have this kind of metacognitive ability that we always thought was just human.
0: And you have to be able to decipher the difference between a dog asking you for help because he or she believes you know better versus this is where I always go when I need something. That's right. Right. Are they thinking about what we're thinking or
1: do they just learn contingencies between their actions and our responses? And in fact, for most of psychology's history, the approach to any non-human animal behavior was, oh, it's just reflexive. You know, they've just learned to make associations between things that happen in the world. But as it turns out, there's been more and more research that shows that actually the easiest, the simplest explanation for their behavior is that they're thinking about kind of the mind behind the other dog or the person that they're Mm. gazing at, etc. So, but it's challenging to find out with with humans. We can ask each other, you know, what we think about each other's minds, do you you know that that person knows something you don't? um, If their eyes were open and your eyes were closed. But we we have to find it out through the behavior of non humans.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to get to a question about this later. But I also had Christina Hunger on the podcast whose dog Mm -hmm. Stella talks with buttons. And the reflexive response from everybody who I tell that to is, oh, it's just that they learn which one. And then you watch some of the dogs, not just Stella, but the dogs that people have started training in this manner because of finding out about it through Stella, and they're having conversations. It's, it's certainly not just limited to um, they learned that this button means food. Um, now, the the larger ideas of what they really understand are, are still to be discovered, but it is sort of fascinating how we've evolved in our discussions around dogs in particular and how their relationship mm. to us and in our lives has changed. And I want to get to that, but I want to start with when you talked about your interest in, in philosophy and it, where it ties to psychology and your, and your research, I want you to explain umwelt I hope I'm saying that right, mm-hmm. and are. how that concept yeah. sort of informs all of your work.
1: You know, I, I didn't know about this concept, which was an idea uh, brought up by um, an Austrian biologist, German biologist, uh, Austrian and German biologist at the turn of the 20th century. His name was Jakob von Uexküll, which I'm probably also not saying exactly <laughs> correctly. And Umwelt is a German word, as I understand it, which just means uh, world uh, or environment. But he really used it to think about the worldview of an organism. So another way you could put it would be the perspective, you know, what matters what uh, to an animal, what they can see. And not just species, but individuals right like what you see when you look at a scene and what i see are going to be a tiny bit different because of your background things you're interested in what you're predisposed to seeing maybe your vision is different than mine right even though we share so much in being humans so then you say well what does the dog see in that same scene and their perceptual ability matters toward that answer their history matters what what sort of relevant to them you know a dog coming into a human household they don't see a chair and think chair i know what the function of that is they're just it's just another object and maybe they learn it's soft and that's where right. people are in my dog's case
0: mine moves. yes exactly right
1: <laughs> right but that's i think that's such an interesting clash of cultures there so this idea i i used in my um first book inside of a dog to try to talk about um the fact that there are all these parallel ways of seeing the same and experiencing the same scene. you know. And the reason I'm interested in Other Animals Umfeld is that we get very caught up in uh, our own way of understanding the world. And we sort of assume that other people and other animals are all experiencing it just like we are, right? We know intellectually someone else has their own opinions or history or background, but we think, but basically it's all the same, right? Mm. Whereas no, you know, If you just look at perceptual abilities alone, you know, there are all sorts of sound frequencies that we can't hear um, above our range of hearing and below. There's light, visual frequencies that we can't see above our visual field and below. And then with dogs, I'm super interested in how their umwelt, their Worldview is defined by smell. All the things mm. that they experience through their nose that we just have no
0: clue about. So we hear about out, that a lot. How much yeah. dogs like because we're predisposed to pull them away, especially if we're not sure if what they're smelling is something gross, and yes. we're really denying them. It's like covering their eyes. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, for humans, for the most part,
1: unless you're somebody who just happens to be partic- particularly interested in in smells, or you're professionally interested in smells. We think of smells, if we really notice a smell we love or really notice a smell (laughs) that we hate. But we're actually experiencing smells all the time. You know, I sort of know the smell of my house, uh, Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, more or less. You know what a room should smell like. You know what outdoors smells like. And we just don't pay that much attention to it as humans. It's not culturally uh, so significant to us. So we forget about the fact that for the animals at the end of our leash, It's hugely significant and it's not just about good or bad smells. Just like looking at a visual scene isn't about good or bad colors. It's about everything that's seeing everything that's there.
0: There's a great uh, book that I heard an interview about, but I haven't read it yet called An Immense World by Ed Young. And yes. it's entirely about the umwelt of animals and insects and birds and how much more empathy we would have for the world around us if we were willing to understand how they experience things differently. It's on my list. It sounds fascinating. Um, yes, he's fabulous. And by the way, he interviewed me and talked to my dog. Talked to oh. him. Observe my dog
1: Finnegan for the book. Oh, I so love it. Okay, that's I'll one of
0: the to, <laughs> What a good connection. I'll have to read it for sure now. Um, interestingly about dogs, though, when compared with other animals in the world, I believe we should have more of a sense of empathy and care because for the amount of time we've spent with them and for the way in which we have created what and who they are in our lives now. Our unique hand in making dogs, how many breeds we've created, how many studies we've done, how we've changed their behavior from a carnivorous wild creature to being wholly dependent on us, essentially. Um, And I wonder for all of that time and interest, how well do you think the average dog owner understands a dog? Mm. (laughs) It's such a great question. Well, if I just restricted my answer
1: to like American, Mm. you know, North American, even dog owners, because most of the world's dogs aren't owned. So their life is um, outside of human kind of control. I think that people, I do want to say, I think that people are mostly well-intentioned about their dogs, but I think they really know very little about their actual dogs, um, because we come in with a sort of set of assumptions about dogs. And then we just sort of place them on the dog and we don't question them often over their life. And dogs are pretty flexible, you know, they fit in with lots of, in lots of different environments with lots of different types of people. They forgive us when we're horrible to them and when we've left them alone. And so we sort of think that that's okay. And of course it isn't really okay, <laughs> but they, they put up with it because they're just a very flexible species. Um, But I do think most people at this point want to know a lot about their dogs and Mm. and want to treat them well. But there's still a little bit of a divide between what we think we know and what we actually know.
0: Well, and there's that feeling of once you've brought something into your home and now you share your life with it, the expectation for dogs to be as human as possible in the ways that are mm. palatable to us. Yeah. Like, that's gross. Don't bring that in the house. Okay, but I'm a dog. Like, don't <laughs> sniff exactly. that butt. Don't hump. Whenever I go right. to the dog park and people are yelling at dogs humping, I'm like, it's a dog. <laughs> like, yeah. it's yeah. it's going to be fine. Um, but Absolutely. It, but I think yeah. W- Yeah, in ways that are really uh, deleterious, people don't understand, even lawmakers, and don't take the time to understand. And that comes about in things like breed-specific legislation and Mm -hmm. bans on certain dogs, even in apartment buildings here in Chicago or in larger spaces where entire cities ban breeds. And that reveals a really terrible understanding of dogs. And it's dangerous. Yeah, it is a complete misunderstanding
1: of dogs to ban a breed, assume that a breed is just like genetically reflexively aggressive. Um, that's not the case, and and it. I think it, you know, in fact, all of our thinking about breeds is kind of weird, because we do sort of assume that uh, breeds come with like lists of attributes, like your specs on a car, you know, you can choose <laughs> the ones you want, like I want a, a friendly one who's like doesn't shed and uh, is good with kids. You sort of feel like you can pick that one good out. Gas but mileage. You, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you can't, you know, it's an organism, it's a it's an individual. And they and the breed might make them predisposed to certain behaviors over others, but there's good research that shows that there's actually more individual difference between within a mem within a breed, between different individuals, than between individuals of different breeds.
0: Yeah. So mm. it, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It would serve us for maybe those who know best to be advising on those laws <laughs> and decision-making. There's an interesting part in your book that, that, um, that I read and love, um, Our Dogs, Ourselves, where mm. you mention Martha Nussbaum uh, and the dignified existence. And I think there's going to be people who can listen to a podcast like this and think it's absurd and ridiculous to treat dogs with any dignity or to expect them to be treated in a certain way they're animals and then there's others who will very closely listen to the things that we should understand, communicate, and educate ourselves on to be responsible to the dogs that we share our lives with. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was a particularly unique way of looking at it, how you were able to take the things that she discusses as dignified experiences and existences for humans and find a dog equivalent. And I wonder if you could briefly share what you think our just base responsibility to our dogs that live with us is. Mm, Thank you. I'm glad you picked that
1: part out. Uh, as you already said, I think that my feeling about it comes from the fact that as humans, we have constitutionally changed this other species. And so they've gone from being resourceful wild animals to, um, you know, sometimes like kind of mutant creatures who <laughs> have trouble with breathing, right, unassisted, uh, can't be birthed unassisted, and who are dependent on humans for everything. For shelter, for uh, medical care, for food, Uh, even all these free ranging dogs that we talk about, the stray dogs of the world, they all live around human settlements. It's not like they're wild animals, they still have this need for the provisions of human society. And so having changed this species so much, I think we do have a kind of responsibility to them not this sort of dismissive, they're an animal. No, we brought them into our fold, into the family of humans, as it were. And that's, in fact, why we value them so much, because they're so good. They were so good at um, doing things for us, whether it's work, companionship, now therapy, whatever it is. Uh, So I got very interested in this idea that Martha Nussbaum, who's a philosopher and Lori Gruen who's another philosopher have talked about with non-human animals which is that they um, deserve to be treated with dignity and when you say it like that it would be it's so strange to me that anybody would say oh no they don't right because what we know about <laughs> dignity is it's that something that is inherent in uh, individuals we would say it's inherent in people but inherent in individuals um, and that we respect because we want to enable people to live their best lives. And I don't know why it would be any different for Mm -hmm. non human individuals, and especially those maybe first, at least first in our thinking would be those who, as I say, we've brought into our fold, and we really treat as kind of ersatz humans. Um, And that, to me, in some ways, ironically, to treat them with dignity is to kind of respect their dogness, which isn't Mm. to say, throw them back out and pretend they can be wolves again, (laughs) but respect the fact that they aren't humans and yet they are adapted to live in our society, but they have these different perceptual states. They know different things than we do. They don't come equipped to understand the things that we think are right and wrong or good or bad or gross or delightful. And that it's, it's our, the duty is ours to like gently form a relationship such that they do know enough to be like, Uh, good members of our household and society
0: right so let them sniff and play and jump in a puddle and be dogs and hump but also you know you're allowed to gently and and kindly train them to not bring dead animals in the house or eat their own shit right yeah Uh, there's there's a balance there (laughs) yes exactly so right Uh, we are saying
1: they're living in our house but so you can't bring the dead animal in but you
0: can't punish the animal for doing the animal thing right 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 Um, you know, it's, you, you talked about it and I have a very close friend who, who has brought this up more than once and other people who have mentioned it, especially when I do dog related or animal related charitable giving or, or work on boards for that, you know, why would you care so much about animal causes when there's human suffering? Mm. And I get where their brain is going. Um, but I feel so deeply about how we've made dogs dependent on ourselves and, and, and not held up our end of the deal and I feel so deeply about um, humans not prioritizing humans on the planet over everything else um, all the time, right? I think we could do both, Agreed. we can care about both. But there's something, I think, innately evil about spending hundreds of years making breeds and breeding dogs to be more and more perfect, to be our companions and to mm-hmm. understand more and more about us and our needs and to deny them theirs. I just That feels um, Precisely. gross <laughs> yeah. compared to, um, even other animals that I feel deeply for and think we should treat kindly.
1: Nor is it a zero sum game. It's right. not. You can care about one thing. It's yes. dogs or people, right? I love my partner and I love my son. And when I had my son, it, I wasn't like sorry <laughs> to my husband. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no more love for Just you. The one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, what aboutism is very popular, especially <laughs> on social media. So yeah. I, I'm sure it yeah. applies to this as well. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word? I think I have to say uh, Pumpernickel. Pumpernickel, a bread and the name of your dog. Um, funny sounding word, of course, cute dog name. Uh, bread that I will occasionally eat, but usually only when other kinds of bread aren't around. Uh, let's check out the origin. So per Adam online, uh, kind of coarse, dark rye bread made from unbolted rye, circa 1740 from the German. Okay, good so far. That all checks out. Here's where things get crazy. Quote, originally an abusive nickname for a stupid person from Pumpern, which means to break wind, and nickel, goblin, lout, or rascal. Pumpernickel, a farting goblin. I will never see a loaf of bread the same way again, nor do I imagine many of you will be naming your dog Pumpernickel, although it might be accurate if your dog is a farting goblin. God, I love looking these things up. Speaking of great words, you're going to learn today. The word of the week is Nudicles. Yeah, that's right. We're doing it. Taking this right off, nudicles.com. Quote, it began in 1995 with patented nudicles, testicular implantation for pets, helping neuter-hesitant pet owners overcome the trauma of altering and allowing their beloved pet to retain its natural look and self-esteem. And thank goodness, right? I mean, I can't imagine the suffering of humans looking at the Ken doll-esque genital bump of their dog. And I mean the dog. Imagine the self-esteem issues. Uh, Thankfully, uh, Nudicals.com also has prosthetic eyes and ear supports for uh, flaccid ear flaps. Because speaking of self-esteem, nobody wants a flaccid flap. Um, Also, more importantly, Nudical.com sells Nudical keychains, and earrings for those who want two plastic canine jelly bags just hanging from their ears all day long. And who wouldn't? Uh, The etymology is presumably neuter plus testicle, a word invented by a man who clearly missed the old look and feel of his dog's testes. All right, in a sentence... Whether $400 dog sets or a nearly $3,000 watermelon-sized custom pair made for a zoo elephant, Nuticles and their sales have made inventor Greg Miller a millionaire. Seriously. Now let's get back to the interview. You mentioned, and for those who maybe didn't understand what you were referring to when you talk about specific breeds that we have created that are now truly dependent on humans. Um, There are breeds where the heads are too big to be birthed without cesarean. There are breeds, most of them, a lot of the purebreds that are really popular now that have what you describe as anthropomorphized features. We have made dogs with flatter faces and shorter noses to look more like ourselves or cute little babies, which is weird when you think about it that way. Um, But pugs and English bulldogs and French bulldogs and Boston terriers, um, so many of them have health issues that are not, this one is sick. It's like all of them suffer from things that are the virtue of their creation. And I think there's anthropomorphizing in a mostly harmless way, like putting a Halloween costume on your dog, as long as they don't seem too bothered by it. And then there's anthropomorphizing where we're literally creating dogs in our image that aren't probably living a very good life.
1: That's right. And it and it's mostly because we've celebrated looks over um, health. And breeding doesn't have to be that way. And there are some breed organizations who say, yeah, you know what, actually, let's look at the health when we're making a pairing and decide what members count as members of the breed versus let's just make sure that they have this one feature that for whatever reason, we think is part of the breed standard. And the breed standards have gotten more and more extreme for many breeds. Uh, the ones you mentioned in particular are are kind of horrific examples. And some countries are even banning the breeding of some of these dogs mm. as a result uh, on America. We're still we yeah. still don't do that. But and it all you know, if you look at the differences between the German Shepherd of the 19th century and the German Shepherd of today, it's almost unrecognizable. And that's just because of selective breeding based on appearance. So if we just bred, if you're going to breed, if we just bred for health, since we have all this information about various genetic diseases, and we know very specifically, you know, that having a really flat face where the, the nose is really short and all the skin is going to be folded up on itself makes it hard for a pug to breathe. Why don't, why don't we create pugs that uh, encourage longer nose pugs? Make that part of the breed standard right. if you're going to do it. We could do it. You know, it's just strange human hubris that we
0: haven't. In your book, the details are really upsetting for some of those dogs. I mean, we kind of joke about like, oh, this pug is not built for speed or distance or, you know, not, not good in the heat or any number of things. And then what you're really joking about is sort of that they're incapable of being comfortable most of the time because of yeah. how you've bred them. And I, you know, I don't want people listening. I love French bulldogs. I, I don't know why, but like, especially because hmm. my one dog would always gravitate toward them at dog parks. And then my other pit bull <laughs> rescue mix looks kind of like he's got some Frenchy in him, which has sort of made me like Frenchies more because I love him <laughs> so much. Um, so I don't want those people to feel bad. I mean, is there an answer to people loving the kinds of dogs that are inherently unhealthy? Well, as you say, there's something
1: natural about our attraction to like baby-like faces and, and a number of these flat-faced dogs, as we call them, or break, brachycephalic dogs, short-nosed dogs like the pug or, or the bulldog, what's happened to the English bulldog and the French bulldog. Uh, sort of have bigger eyes, a wider forehead, shorter nose, which make them look more baby-like and humans are predisposed mm-hmm. to sort of like be attracted to we babies. Love ourselves. Yeah. Thank goodness we are attracted to babies or we would just leave them. I mean, they're mm-hmm. such a nuisance. They take so much time. <laughs> they're very demanding, but we have to raise them in order to make more of the humans. So yeah. that that's a natural feeling. I feel like, first of all, right, you're not it's not weird or cruel if you like these dogs. And I like the dogs, too. I mean, I like. I don't blame the dogs, right? There's, they right. can be terrific dogs. But if you're in the situation where you're thinking about getting a dog and you're looking at various breeds and people say, oh, the, you know, these the Frenchie is super cute. And then you look and see all the health problems involved in breeding. I'd say, you know, find Frenchies that need rescuing rather than buying a new one or f- yeah. find a breeder if there are any who uh, is breeding is breeding for health and trying to outbreed, find uh, dogs who are outside of the breed right. in order to add some fresh genes that are going to change the shape so yeah. they're healthier, or get a mix. Be- right.
0: My favorite breed, by the way, you know, are mixes. Rescue mutts are yeah. are the best. Um, There's a lot of heartwarming segments in our dogs ourselves and and things that people who own dogs will absolutely connect to and how we name them and how we talk to them and and Mm. all the other stuff. And even uh, some absurdities like the dog accessories we feel compelled to buy. I think my favorite is the fake dog testicles for neutered animals in case they uh, themselves feel insecure neuticles. about yes. not having <laughs> balls anymore <laughs> just the idea of paying and and <laughs> applying neuticles to your dog is so ridiculous um but i i think i love the book as much if not more and your work because you're willing to get into the topics that are are trickier and because um i think we need to have them and the part of that book that spoke to me most was trying to understand if we have this new relationship with dogs, how they should be classified to protect them better. And if mm-hmm. they are just property, how are they different from a chair, for example? You use that example a lot because in the eyes of the law, our dogs are chairs. We could, in theory, throw them off a cliff and get a minor penalty the same way if we threw a chair off a cliff and it was littering or it was destruction of property or whatever it was. Right. Um, and so you, you talk about that? And how do we use them? And should they be used in research? Do they have rights as opposed to other animals? That's complicated, too. Um, I wonder where you land on the couple examples that you gave, like personhood, the same way we allow corporations to be people, which is ridiculous, Um, or maybe living property, as another person suggested. What do you think the best solution is? Yeah, it's such an interesting thing
1: to think about and something which many years of living with dogs I had never thought about, and it only gradually crept up in my mind that part of how we, the explanation for how we deal with them and buy them and sell them and get rid of them and acquire them is that uh, they're just considered property, as you say, and, and the law divides things into basically persons or things. And as you allude to, not all persons are people corporations are persons, businesses can be persons. So they get all the rights, they can own things. And then they're the things and they basically have no rights. They can be owned by persons. And so it's very strange to have this family member of ours about whom we, you know, who, who we deeply love. And in most cases, I think most people consider dogs or cats a part of the family, for instance, have them be actually just like, you know, your toaster oven or your chair. Right. In, in the law's eyes. And as a result, if someone comes into your house and steals your toaster oven, there's like a very small penalty. And similarly, if they steal your dog, even if they steal your dog and kill your dog, mm-hmm. there's almost no penalty for that because they were just a thing. So you think, how could we remedy this? Uh, so it doesn't seem to completely make sense to make them a person in one respect in the law's eyes because they can't, they're dependent on us, for instance, right? right? Um, they and can't they can't articulate be, what they make want. Make decisions on their right. own that are even for their own best interest, uh, let alone for considering others necessarily, uh, certainly not in a human society. So, although that's, that is one of the solutions that, um, like Stephen Wise and the Non Human Rights Project, is pursuing with not dogs, but with an elephant. There was a court case just out about Happy the Elephant and chimpanzees, where he thinks that they should be considered persons for the sake of their rights uh, being um, acknowledged in terms of their welfare, basically, right? right? That they don't get to be kept captive in unfairly small enclosures without social companionship or unhealthy, you know, these things that don't seem like enormous gives, right? right? That just seem reasonable. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one approach. I think the approach I like more, or I feel like is more promising, if you consider the, the pace at which the law changes, which is not rapidly, uh, hmm. is the idea that within property, there might be different types of property. And this is the idea of David Favor, who, who says, well, what about a kind of subcategory of living property, which would have kind of rights on its own, ways that they can be treated, which is different than your chair or your toaster oven. And with, to some extent, we do treat, for instance, babies as this type of thing, Mm -hmm. Um, almost like property when they're very young because they're persons, but we're not expecting them to do anything basically, right? There are some other category. Um, We're not expecting them to be able to vote or behave appropriately for other people. We're like, no, I'm completely responsible for you, but I still have to care about your welfare. Um, Right. I can't just do what I want with you. So you're not quite property. You're not quite a person yet. And maybe you're something else. I think dogs might be characterized well as living property because it's um, giving it's it's accounting for the fact that they're sentient feeling thinking beings who have needs, which is different than an,
0: an inanimate object. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, and there's parts of your book where you talk about, for instance, divorce, where judges roll their eyes and say it's ridiculous to have to make some sort Mm -hmm. of ruling on the dogs in the split. But beyond potentially a spouse or children, there is no other being that you spend as much time with day in, day out, sleep with in bed, wake up to every morning. And the idea that they would be um, sort of it would it would just be up to chance whether you would ever get to see them again when you got divorced Uh, is is ridiculous and and so there is some sort of category that needs to be decided and the same I think um I think in general as we're recognizing more the feelings and understanding better animals it's sort of ridiculous in some ways to think about how animals that are being kept for for meat production um Mm -hmm. they have to be treated a certain way until you murder them Uh, Mm -hmm. but that's a whole lot better than not having any regulations in place for their happiness. I mean, you talk about the very little expectation. Um, I'm always just distraught when I'm reading the different kinds of eggs and you learn, you know, mm-hmm. this one gets at least a foot of space, right? And then there's mm-hmm. some states where chickens don't even get uh, the the room to move, to turn around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And so the idea that in the law, there are very few protections for even dogs. If if a chicken's too far for your brain to jump, but a dog shouldn't be. um, I think that might be some of the most important part of the work that you do is is getting us to have those conversations uh, and talking about it. Your new book is about puppies, the year of the puppy, (laughs) charting the first year of a puppy's life. Um, It's different than a typical book with tips for raising a new pup, although some of those come into play. Um, And I wonder how your perspective changed on your other dogs or all dogs, maybe, after finally having the opportunity to be there from the first day of a puppy's life versus for most of us who rescue or otherwise uh, having it be several months in. I love, first of all, your segue from property to puppies. Like, I obviously, you know, dealing
1: with some hard topics, which I think I agree we need to address. But also, you know, there's the reason that I'm in this field uh, and have been for so long is because also there are puppies, right? Like, they're just a wonderful. to be
0: held. It's not a (laughs) wonderful
1: part of our life. Um, I uh, had not ever known a one of the dogs we've lived with when they were a very young pup right when they were born all our dogs have been um from shelters or rescue dogs and as a result you get them many months or in some cases many years into their life and i like many other people just thought well what what happened you know i just wish i could have known you you know since the beginning and and kind of shepherded you through that time and and sort of had explanations for the things that are happening now, right? And we all have stories of, oh, well, my dog is, reacts this way toward men. So there must have mm-hmm. been something in the past where they, you know, it's some my man dog came in. My dog skateboards. Skateboards, <laughs> yeah, they are horrifying, really. But um, so I thought with this approach where I was gonna look at the science of early dog development while also raising a very young puppy who I met right after her birth, Um, I would get to sort of see what those early things were, and they would explain her later personality. And I would say that one thing I learned is that there is no like neat explanation. There are some very, very critical stages of their early life where things can go really well or they can go terribly wrong, right? Like early socialization periods. And you do see in dogs who come out of puppy mills or come from abusive backgrounds, that if they weren't exposed to lots of different sights and sounds and smells and people and cats and birds and sheep and trucks or whatever they're going to live around when they're between about four and 14 weeks, and then again, secondarily, when they're a little bit older, then they might be really scared of them or act aggressively toward them uh, or just get anxious, generally anxious. And so there are these key times. Uh, if you have a relatively stable uh, life for a puppy in their early years where they're with their mother and then they are introduced to all these stimuli, including humans, different types of humans, little people acting erratically, mm-hmm. then probably the pup you later adopted you know, had appropriate socialization and there's no specific reason why your dog is uh, like Chase's skateboards, for instance, right. right? Except for the fact that they just are really loud and yeah, rumbly. Like, how are you going so fast? Right. What the
0: heck? You don't have a bike, right? <laughs> right. So,
1: right. so that, that was interesting to me, both that I couldn't explain her completely from knowing her from the beginning, but also to see explicitly the times when they're susceptible to learning about the world and curious about the world and not fearful about it and how important that is to their later development.
0: I, I was really interested in that part, that socialization period. And in the book, you have these parallel litters. One is just a, a mom that was abandoned when she was ready to give birth. And so it's just a nice woman who took them in and is helping, you know, get the puppies ready, hopefully to be adopted. And the other is a, a working dog who has been bred with another working dog to create super hyper amazing dogs that will be the best (laughs) at finding human remains or drugs or whatever they're going to do um and in both cases the intentionality of introducing them to things just to help them later in life not be stressed and it's fascinating now when you get a pup later you don't get to introduce it to a roomba and a cat (laughs) and all those things until later in life what would you say to someone who says oh well my dog hates this thing or is there something i can do a few months in when I get it as a puppy or a few years in to try to help if if that if that stage stage is so important for that.
1: Right. And if they've missed learning right. about the Roomba when they're four weeks. <laughs>
0: right, yeah, right. Which, which wasn't they invented. Very well, might have. Right.
1: <laughs> well, you absolutely. there's are a, sec, a secondary socialization stage where they're um, they can again be introduced to these things and they're open. And that's when a lot of people do get puppies. If you're getting a puppy at around four months old or something, mm-hmm. at, say, at a, sh- at a rescue organization. They still are very susceptible to learning about new things without getting overly scared. And even if they've passed that secondary socialization period, and they're four years old, and you don't know what's happened in their life, they still can be introduced to these things, but just in a really different way. Not by just showing, letting the Roomba walk around, you know, drive <laughs> around in the room and go in its crazy erratic path, and seeing what they do. Um, But instead, in really small kind of baby steps, associating that Roomba with something positive, when it's not making any noise and not moving it at all, and then gradually introducing like all the potentially frightening elements of it and pairing it with something positive. So they still can learn about things. They can still change their behavior, just as we can change our behavior about phobias, for instance. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's just a very a deliberate assiduous process instead of being this time when it's super easy to learn about the world. Just like for a baby, it's really easy to learn about, learn language, Yeah, no problem. But you get to be my age and you're like, yeah, I'd like to pick up Spanish <laughs> and whoa, it's awkward. You know, right, it's just right. not, it's just not coming. It has to be very deliberate and explicit learning, but I could still get there. It's just going to take years instead of boy, you know, right
0: away. I'm writing all this down because I um, asked my husband to get me a dancing life-size Santa right after Christmas last year when it went on a tremendous sale, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what my three dogs will think about the dancing Santa, um, and so I'm going to need to use all these. All of We these... almost,
1: <laughs> I have to say, we sometimes use stimuli, uh, things to show the dogs in the lab, which are going to which they're gonna have never seen before. It's like a yeah. novel stimulus that maybe they're gonna be a little apprehensive about. And one of the things that we thought of using in the past was was those uh, weird inflated yeah. uh, things that you see Outside by car dealerships, car dealer, yeah. where they sort of like are fainting and then coming yeah. up again. And I, which scare me a little bit actually. I'm a little freaked out. But I thought I thought it would be too scary right. for dogs, Possibly. and we don't really want to, you know. <laughs> terrorized dogs in the lab. We're just interested in showing them something new, so we didn't use it. So I wonder if the Santa yeah. is kind of like that. Yeah, you might it's like. You might start like that's without, person, not inflated, like not yeah. dancing, right. no music, right? Like right. just with the... Sm- easiest approach uh, and also with the best treats.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, that's going to have to be the good stuff for that one. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) that's a tough sell. It is. Um, uh, Well, we're running out of time, so we need to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. Mm. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Although in this case, it will be slightly advised, uh, uh, slightly revised because I want to ask you dog-specific questions instead for the speed round. So I want to start with uh, the most surprising thing your research has taught you. In all of your time, the one that you, after you were done with the study, you were like, wow, that is not what I thought I was going to get. That dogs
1: really smell time. That they're noticing us. Uh, the past through odor and they're also kind of mm. detecting something that's going to happen in the future through smell on the breeze. So that essentially they're experiencing the passage of the day through their sense of smell.
0: And you don't mean just, oh, I smell another dog. I know you were somewhere without me. You mean that they're literally able they to... They seem to s- know how long
1: you've been gone because huh. the smell of you in the house has diminished over time.
0: Right interesting okay uh the thing that you learned that most changed your everyday behavior with your dogs
1: uh i would say i would say that it is um all of this information about how they're seeing the world through olfaction and it i would like every other person who lives with a dog you know would sort of hurry my dog along and not let them sniff every single thing that they wanted to sniff <laughs> um and i now make sure i have dedicated walks where they can right
0: that that's so how it doesn't have to be every walk if you don't have time but don't mm, no, let them do walk, it every once in you can a while
1: exercise there could still be a walk to just relieve themselves but also this is a celebrate you know you're control of their life you're in control of their life right what they get to see and so can't one of the walks every day be about them looking at the world, you know, through their nose. I think that's that yeah. really changed so much of how I, how I view our, our walks with our dogs, which is a big part of our interactions with them.
0: This might be a tough one because it's probably different across so many different households and people. But to your point about you're in charge of their every day, what thing do you think most people are unknowingly doing that makes their dogs' lives less joyful? Mm. Uh, I think
1: that i think there are a couple of things but i think that just (laughs) giving them nothing to do and leaving them alone all the day you know people think oh well i i have the video camera on when i'm out and my dog is just sleeping he's Mm. okay sleeping all day yeah they can do it they can deal with it but look at a working dog for a second you know and how engaged they are through the whole day they never need a spontaneous cat nap right they they can They want to be engaged all day. And maybe your dog doesn't have the same drive, but they're sleeping because there is nothing for them to do. Mm. And so I think it's really important that we consider that. Don't leave them alone for long stretches, especially in a crate (laughs) to save your house. Like this is their life passing. And I think it's important to give them various engagements, you know, things to do people who come and walk them, try to be there yourself. You know, I think their lives need to be enriched um, more than we. Than it's easy for us to do. It's a little bit of work.
0: And another dog helps sometimes or not always? Sometimes, but it really depends on the dog, right? Yeah. I do think
1: that social companionship is huge and can make up for a lot of other uh, oversights, uh, including having to leave them for long periods without anything to do. But some dogs don't really love the company of other dogs. So know your dog and right. and don't just assume that that's a, a solution for everything.
0: Well, and a follow up on that, then I'm torn sometimes when I have friends who are thinking about adopting and they say, I just don't know. I'm not home all the time. You know, you and your husband mm-hmm. have interesting schedules and you spend so much time with your dogs and I wouldn't be. And I always think, but isn't it better than that dog getting euthanized, right? That they will have joy in big chunks of their day, even if they're lonely during it. And I don't know how you reconcile that. Well, I think
1: uh, my way of looking at it is that it's great that they're thinking about that, right? If they are even before they've met the dog, who will eventually become probably an (laughs) integral part of their family, they're realizing that they might have to change their behavior. And they just don't know how much yet. And that's okay. I want them to I want people to be thinking about that ahead of time. And just be susceptible to like figuring out what your dog needs, just as your dog is going to spend their whole life figuring out what you need from them. Right. So they're, they're entering into a relationship with some foresight. And so I think that's, that's good. That's positive.
0: Right. And maybe it's a matter of being more creative than just, oh, I can't afford to have a dog walker every day. Well, maybe there's a friend who loves yeah. dogs, or maybe there's an answer where you could drop it off once a week or something where you're...
1: Now people are bringing think- dogs
0: to offices once in a while. That's right.
1: got to be highly stimulating, right? You can right. leave your dog with lots of puzzle toys. There are lots of things to do apart from uh, having to completely overthrow your life.
0: Right. But I'm I'm all for overthrowing your life if possible in favor of your dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, So I mentioned Stella the talking dog. Are are you familiar with this? Yes. Okay. So in talking to Christina, it made me sad to think about all the dogs not given the opportunity to talk. And I've tried it with my dogs and I made the boards and one has zero interest. One's interested, but doesn't do it regularly. And the other one tries to eat the buttons no matter what I do. He just tries to rip the buttons off the board. Um, and so, you know, I'm trying with them, but I wonder, is it too much to think, that all dogs are, are like desperately wishing they could communicate back and they're all just really frustrated all the time um, <laughs> because that's what I felt like after knowing that her dog and all the other dogs I now follow on Instagram that talk to their humans about the various things um, that are all dogs just like sad because they, they want to you know i'm always like looking at my dog like use your words <laughs> like what do you want <laughs> i mean you,
1: that's the heart of it is i think that what people are excited about with with the, the buttons is that they translate communications for us but i i think the dogs are communicating most of those things right now right i mean i am not as sanguine as you about whether the dogs are saying all the things in the buttons because not not that they're not pushing them not that they're even pushing them in appropriate orders and even without reward it's that that i can't be positive as a scientist that that's what they're meaning and people are sci- studying this now right, right? like so it's right. a subject right as far as i'm concerned it's an all it's all anecdotal like all of our stories about dogs and some are going to be are going to look look like they're accurate if we scrutinize right. them
0: and some aren't. Well, this some stand st- out to me like, you know, the, the when, when they had their kayak, their inflatable kayak in the living room to move something and the dog hit the buttons why beach inside. I mean, what other explanation <laughs> is there for the dog to, you know what I mean? Like,
1: well, it's great except for we don't know all the other things that the dog said that didn't make as much sense at other times, right? right. Like if the dog yeah. could push that at any other time, that doesn't get recorded and and yeah, that's distributed true. to that's people. True so the whole context is super important and what if instead of beach you had moon would you know is it that your dog thinks that the kayak goes to the moon like are they telling you something (laughs) new no you just had the button that said moon and so it turned out to be an apt for that context like it's very tricky and i feel like it's that situation with the buttons is just exactly this crash between we really want to know what our dogs are thinking. And also right. we r- we're, we're assuming that they are like us, that they are thinking things like us. And I think that collision, you know, needs to be further explored by science and also shows people's real interest in finding out about dogs and also our susceptibility to suddenly thinking that we got it,
0: right? Yeah. Where I think it's yeah. more
1: complicated than that. So.
0: You actually made me feel better uh. because I'm I'm still going to follow all the button pressing dogs. And if I get a new dog at some point, I'm going to start from the beginning with that dog and hope I can make it stick. But I also do feel a little better that. I might be jumping ahead and assigning to the to all dogs um, a need that might not be there and now I don't have to feel quite so bad about that if it might not be proved yet. <laughs> I got to on I my scientists brain more dogs, often.
1: <laughs> I think that they're, I think they're talking to us all the time already yeah. and there's still a lot to see that most people aren't seeing if they're just not really observing their dogs for long periods and that's, can we know what they're saying in sentences? No, we can gloss it in sentences but I, I'm pretty sure I could tell when my new puppy is saying you know uh, i only want that food if the cat is going to try to eat it you know right. i can i don't think exactly. she's really saying that yeah,
0: yeah, yeah
1: that's yeah. the thing but i <laughs> see all her behavior that leads to that because i'm watching her all the time she is over scrutinized to be sure right. as a scientist dog and i think all dogs are doing a lot of communication and it's very rewarding to see what they're communicating and learning the meaning of their ear movements and body language and eye gestures and where they look and size and you know whines that stuff is entail language like that stuff is great and it's already there
0: yeah all right two more quick ones uh how do you choose when you're going to step in and advise someone on their dog um, because I am already such an asshole about that, and I am not a scientist, and I am still just like, "Hey, don't do that." Or here's, "Hey, you gotta like yelp like the mom would if the dog was biting it," and then that's how the puppy knows not to. Like, you know, once I learn something, I'm like, everyone needs to know this. It's a, it's a. I would say probably a fault of my career choice, but uh, how do you decide?
1: I never do. I never really. Step in. If people ask me, I answer. Doesn't it drive
0: you nuts? Yeah. Oh, my God, just empathy wise, sometimes I'm like, Oh, my God, don't do that. Or don't say that. Or that's the yeah. dog's fine. That's a dog. Let him, you know, do whatever. I feel like
1: I, I, I've, sometimes I feel I've been too passive in this respect. But I do think my books say the things that I want to say, right. And often, I'm not as good at saying them at that moment. and and And, off, and often, I also know now from lots of encounters, people are not that excited about getting advice about their dog that's unsolicited Uh, (laughs) and that sometimes can make them even less disposed to follow what you're doing. And so Mm. I have to, I'm, I'm afforded the opportunity to like actually be really present in the world of dogness via my writing. And, And I feel like that's the way I try to distribute what I think and what I know from the research. Um, and I hope that it just kind of gradually filters out, and that's going to work for me better than like yeah. coming Although, up to someone on the street. In
0: cases of true abuse, I think it's if it okay were abusive, to, yeah. that's
1: different. Then you're right. Then you're saving an individual. Right. But just some moment,
0: that <laughs> right. moment,
1: someone yells at their dog or something. Like I don't know the whole context. Yeah. And I'm not ready to insert myself there. Yeah. Um, in that in that direct way, where by the way, I know that they're not going to be receptive.
0: Okay, last one. And it's a biggie. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe I put it in a speed <laughs> round with a minute left. But here we go. One of my favorite lines in um, our dogs ourselves is I suggest that we not let our agenda for dogs be set by the accidents of history. Mm. And I wonder what advice you would have for people who care about dogs and are looking ahead to our relationship with them and how we can make it better. Um, what can we do? Or I guess, um, what would you like to see in terms of changes that we can help advocate for? That is a lot in under a minute, <laughs> but I
1: think that we, <laughs> I'll give I you two. It. I, I mean, I do think that when their when their legal status changes, that will change a lot for dogs. And I think that's important to advocate for uh, and not just dogs, by the way, other non-humans um, that who deserve to be treated as sentient creatures and not as property I think that we have to reconsider that we can do all the things to the dog that we just do now, right? Every, all the, the cosmetic surgeries, the inbreeding, I think we have to reconsider that that is allowed uh, with dogs. Certainly, all the things that we disallow now in terms of animal welfare abuse, strict, you know, elaborate abuses, that has to be enforced. Right. Most of the Animal Welfare Act is not enforced and you can still get away with doing a ton with your dog or animal that that shouldn't be allowed so you have to enforce and i think you have to change the law and i think we have to do less with them and i also think we have to um step in as a society and educate people more about what it means to take on someone else's life as Mm. you know and be responsible for another animal's life just as we do with other person's lives Right, uh, my dog is growling at me at the cat as I say this. <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole there's a whole dynamic happening next to me on the couch. <laughs> I think it's all doable. We just have to con- we have to reconsider our status as um, kind of gods in their eyes and let mm. them, like all the animals we live around on this earth, flourish a little bit rather than trying to control them yeah. and uh and own them i think
0: that message would serve for a whole bunch of things beyond animal welfare mm-hmm. but climate and human yeah. being related if we simply saw ourselves as part of the circle of life instead of uh the boss of it um yes and that hasn't op- served us well we no. have some good evidence yeah Well, I just love your work. Um, and I'm so grateful you came on. I loved picking your brain. So looking forward to, I know you just finished a book, so I'm not going to demand another immediately, but yeah, I'm looking forward to whatever (laughs) it's going to happen. It's going to (laughs) happen. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sarah. It's been a total treat. That's what she said. (laughs) Oh yeah. One more thing. So this is a place for rants, raves, and everything in between. I tell you what to read, watch, listen to, maybe share a story. Uh, Today, I want you to read Dr. Horowitz's books. I want you to maybe buy your dog some puzzles, some treat puzzles for when you're out of the house all day. Maybe consider doggy daycare or a regular pet sitter to visit if you're going to be gone a while. Um, take some smell walks where your dog gets to dictate where you go and how long you uh, you sniff everything. Um, if you don't have a dog, maybe volunteer at a local dog shelter. Donate to a favorite dog charity. Mine is peaceforpits.org. Uh, That's where we got our pups, Banks and Haji Um, and just take the time to appreciate these amazing, smart, loyal, incredible, kind, helpful, sweet, sweet gifts to us and treat them with the love they deserve and honestly, the love they are owed by us who made them as loyal and wonderful to us as they are. Thanks for listening. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you've got guest suggestions, questions or more, you should always go. To the iTunes or podcast app, follow, subscribe to "That's What She Said" with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give me a review. Like, missed title nine, who wrote "Awesome Interviewer"? Sarah Spain is one of the best interviewers around. She never gets in the way of her guests, but frequently adds cogent details from her personal and professional experience. Thank you, missed title nine, uh, and thanks to all my listeners, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
1: That's what she said. <laughs>